technology is going to work for us. Well, we've already had one bit reference to Pride and Prejudice today, and uh, Phil's mentioned uh, Darcy, Mr. Darcy this morning. But uh, what I put up there, I guess, is probably the most famous opening line in English literature. It's a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. And with that opening sentence, of course, we know that... Uh, um, I've forgotten the name, Lizzie... Uh, uh, Bennett, Lizzie Bennett will get her man and we're not too far into the book before we realise which man it is she's going to get but um, the whole point well one way of looking at the book perhaps is how she um, transcends the, her own pride and prejudice and that of her, uh, her friends and her sisters and other people um, she transcends if you like the, the um, cynicism to which super intelligent are sometimes prone um, and she progresses and achieves in the end perhaps what one might call true nobility so she becomes a true mistress of Pembury, the mistress of a great house um, not just by marrying a very rich man, which she did of course the owner of the house, Darcy but um, she progresses above her sisters, the, the pretty one and the, um, uh, the, the tomboy and the scatty one and their other rivals. And she becomes, as we might say, we'll use the language of Proverbs, the wife of noble character, the one who becomes the fit person to be the mistress of a great house. And um, that is a quotation I've put up there, Proverbs 31 verse 10. A wife of noble character, who can find? She is worth far more than rubies. Well, the book of Proverbs has somewhat of the same thought, except that it focuses on the viewpoint of the young man, in this case, instead of the young lady. And we meet him, newly adult, on his way into town. Um, the, the, book, the bit that we read just is the introduction to this. And he's going to meet two women, in town and um, to whose attractions will he succumb will he land up in the end with the wife of noble character or will he fall into the clutches of the adulteress and as he leaves the house his parents give him one last exhortation Proverbs 1 verses 8 to 10 listen my son to your father's instruction do not forsake your mother's teaching they will be a garland of grace to, you, to grace your head and a chain to adorn your neck. My son, if sinners entice you, do not give in to them. So here, off he goes, newly adult, into the town to make his way. No, no, it doesn't. Yes. So, who are the characters in this um, drama? And it's not a work of fiction in the, quite the same way as uh, Pride and Prejudice is, it's a part allegory part good advice, part exhortation. But the idea is much the same. So who are the main characters? Well, our hero is only referred to, really, as my son all the way through. Um, in the last chapter, it talks about Lemuel, but Lemuel, in fact, was probably a real person. And although he is addressed as my son, in that case, um, probably it's just that passage that really refers to Lemuel. 
So really, he's just given the name, my son. He's the son, the child of his loving parents. And, uh, well, we've already met his parents, his father's instruction, his mother's teaching. Um, fortunately, he seems to have a rather better mother than Lizzie Bennett did. Um, they both seem to be wise uh, parents. And then we meet three, three women. We meet wisdom. And we meet another woman who's called folly, but is most often, in fact, referred to as the adulteress, although we're told her name is folly. And then, right at the end of the book, we meet another lady, one we've already referred to, who is referred to as the wife of noble character. Um, not quite the same as wisdom, although, as we shall see, connected to wisdom, but does seem to be a different person. So there are three women, particularly the wisdom and the adulteress we meet in the first nine chapters, but they pop up from time to time throughout the whole book. <coughs> and there are some minor characters as well. Prudence. Prudence shares a house with wisdom. Uh, we see that in um, Proverbs 8, verse 12. I, wisdom, dwell together with prudence. I possess knowledge and discretion. Actually, prudence is only personified in that one verse, but there are lots of verses that talk about prudence as a, as a virtue. So we can think of prudence as a character. Perhaps, perhaps she's wisdom's sister. doesn't actually tell us that, but she could be. And then we meet a few baddies, um, as well as, as, well as uh, folly. We meet the sluggard. Sluggard means a lazy person. And he's a benefit cheat. He's the person who thinks the world owes him a living, but he's too early, too lazy to get up and earn it. No, maybe he's Folly's brother. Certainly, he shares a lot of uh, characteristics with Folly. He always wants the benefits of life, but he's not prepared to have the responsibilities. So we'll come across sluggard, the sluggard from time to time. Um, then we meet, on the other hand, there is the true friend. Many people know this proverb, I think, but he is an important character. Uh, Proverbs 18.24 A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Some people have said that friend is Christ himself, and I don't think it would be wrong to take it that way, but I'm not sure that's the only meaning. Though we do meet the true friend, the companion who is not just a companion for the good times, but the friend who sticks when things start to go wrong. We meet, uh, one point, we meet uh, Folly's betrayed and rather angry and jealous husband. Well, I'm not surprised you'd be angry and jealous if you were married to Folly. Um, Proverbs 6, verses 34 and 35 says, for jealousy arouses a husband's fury, and he will show no mercy when he takes his revenge. He will not accept any compensation. He will refuse the bribe, however great it is. So that's uh, Folly's husband when he finds out what's been going on. And of course, there are various other interesting companions and neighbours. Um, towards the end of the book, there's a rather interesting character, only meet in one verse actually, but she's called the leech, and she has 
two, two, two daughters who are always crying out for more. It's in the last, second to last chapter. So there's a, there's a whole host of interesting characters. Now, how's the book organized? Well, it's a double chiasm. Do I really want to know that, you ask? <laughs> well, yeah, actually you do. <laughs> um, a chiasm is the name that people give to this common Hebrew structure where we go in and out. So um, first you, you sort of uh, describe your points, whatever they are, and you go through them. And then after that, you reprise them more or less in the reverse order. That's what a chiasm is. Usually you don't just repeat what you've said, you, you take a slightly different slant on it. But the basic idea is that, that um, you go through your points and then you reprise them again in the reverse order. Um, it's perhaps a, a different version of the old preacher's motto of first you tell them what you're going to say and then you say it and then you tell them what you've said. Uh, perhaps the same idea. It's very common in Hebrew literature. In fact, it's very common in religious literature. I'm told it also um, appears even in the Book of Mormon and in the, um, and in the Quran also. But uh, it's obviously regarded as a good... Um, at least that's what I say, I'm told. That's what I should say is Wikipedia says that, so it may or may not be true. But... <laughs> Um, but it, it is, it, it's useful to know that because otherwise it can seem very unstructured, the book. <coughs> so we, as we saw, there's the prologue, which is the introduction explaining what the book's about. And we read that and we read this first exhortation to godly living. After that, we meet these two women, Wisdom and the Adulteress. And that's a big section, nine, some nine chapters. And then we meet another big section, in fact the lo longest section of the whole book, the Proverbs of Solomon. And then we meet these two inner sections, what are called Sayings of the Wise. Um, and they're actually rather interesting. Did I write it? Where did I write it down? Did I write it down? I lost it. Sorry. Um, Oh, well, never mind, I'll maybe come across the name in a minute. Actually, they're quite interesting because they're actually written, uh, they're actually based on an Egyptian document, which is something like the teachings of Anna Hopi or something, but I can't find why I wrote his name down. This was uh, discovered in 1922, this document, when people started translating Egyptian documents and caused a bit of a stir at the time when people realised that these central chapters of the Book of Proverbs appear to have been based on that Egyptian teaching. But of course, given um, a very uh, Hebraic slant in the version that we have here. Um, Agur and Lemuel may well not have been Jews. Uh, I did look up what Lemuel means. Obviously the L bit on the end refers to God. Uh, again, I forgot to write it down, I'm sorry. But they may well not have been Jews. So not, this is not all necessary Jewish literature originally. Um, the sayings of Ager, in fact, are quite similar in style to the book of Job, which is regarded as one of the oldest books. 
So much of this may be based on the um, on older books than Solomon, older wisdom even than Solomon. Uh, we do know that it's been was edited at quite a late stage. <coughs> How do we know that? Well, one one reason is that this these more proverbs of Solomon, which start from chapter 25, actually are introduced by saying they were collected by the men of King Hezekiah. Now Hezekiah, of course, was a king who lived several hundred years after Solomon. And so we know that this book is not just, you know, just straight from the pen of Solomon. It was um, edited at a much later stage. Also, another interesting fact, actually, is that this, more, this further sayings of the wise, this section here, as you can say, is actually very short. In fact, it's only about 10, 11 verses. Um, in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, these two bits, the sayings of Aga and the oracle of Lemuel's mother, actually appear in the further sayings of the wise. So obviously somebody thought it might be a good idea to beef up that section by putting these other sayings of the wise in there. But then in the final edited version that we have, they've put at the end here, um, I would suggest the reason they put it at the end here is because of this structure. So that um, we have uh, the sayings of Ager, which is a meditation on godly living and therefore kind of balances out this exhortation to godly living. Um, and also we have the two women at the beginning and we have the two women at the end. <coughs> so it's just very much that this structure is, very, is intentional and that we are supposed to connect the dots, as it were, to connect the sayings of Agur with the exhortation to godly living and collect, connect these two women, Lemuel's mother and the wife of noble character, with um, wisdom and the adulteress, although clearly they're not the same two women. But uh, the fact that, you know, that, we, that we have these two women at the beginning and two women at the end. A um, couple of other interesting things. Uh, first of all, the wife of noble character, which is the epilogue to the book, right at the end um, of chapter uh, 31, um, is a acrostic. That means that each verse starts with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Um, I don't quite know why, but um, somebody thought perhaps this made it easy to, to remember or to think of. And so the epilogue is an acrostic. Oh yes, so there's the teachings of Amen Amenenope. That's yeah, I knew I'd written it down somewhere. Uh, that's those central sayings are based on the, uh, the Hebrew book, the teachings of Amenenope. So overall the book oh yes, and the other point I was going to make is that this first section, Wisdom and the Adulteress, is a much stricter chiasm. This structure is quite loose, you know, it doesn't balance too well. The, some sections are quite long, others are quite short. But the wisdom and the adulteress, this first section, is an inner chiasm which is much stronger, much more strict. And we'll actually um, look at this next time, which won't be next week, because I'm on holiday next week, so it'll be in two weeks' time. And we're going to look at that section. And you'll see this in-out structure is very strongly 
um, there in that first section. So that's the structure of the book, but what seems odd when we read it is that at a more micro level, it doesn't seem to be very structured at all. We've got all these connections, all these um, sayings of the wise, proverbs of Solomon, um, and yet it all, when the arrangement all seems a bit random. I mean, with our sort of uh, Western mind, we, you know, we think there ought to be a section on um, wisdom in the home, perhaps, and a section on wisdom in business ethics. Um, and maybe a section on sexual ethics and something like that. Uh, but it just, at, at the micro level, it just ain't arranged like that. We've got groups of proverbs that seem to hang together and you think maybe he's developing a subject and then you find there's a complete change of direction. It's quite, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's quite mind-boggling sometimes how it, there's this sudden change. Um, and that doesn't perhaps make it so easy to come to grips with, but I'll say a little bit more about this in a minute because I think there might be a reason for that. Having said that, I am going to try and structure it a bit, and so I am going to have a talk on wisdom in the home and wisdom in politics and wisdom in the. Uh, so I'm going to approach it with my Western mind, but the, um, the but the, it's not structured that way in the book. So. What are we to make of this book? <coughs> and I've titled this section, this is going to be the final section, but it's perhaps the longest one. I've titled it, The Riddles of the Wise. Now that phrase occurs at the end of the first section, um, the sayings and riddles of the wise. And I looked up what this Hebrew word means and riddles is a good translation. It means um, a, a dark saying, something that's not immediately obvious, a mystery perhaps, something you have to dig into a bit. And so that gives a hint, doesn't it? We're not supposed to take these things necessarily at their face value. Sometimes we have to think about them a bit and say, what is this guy really saying? What's this really about? So is it a book only for young men? Well, clearly not, uh, because the wife of noble character is obviously a woman, so there's plenty in it for women as well. <laughs> and in fact, I say the, he doesn't take the, um, the, the the book doesn't take the allegory that strictly, and occasionally it goes out of character and out of sequence a bit. So in uh, actually in chapter five, halfway through this first section on on wisdom and the adulteress. He says, uh, we read this, um, May your fountain be blessed, and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. So he's obviously thinking ahead to the time when the young man has grown up. Um, he's no longer a young man. He's got his wife and had his wife for a long time. And what does he say? May your fountain be blessed, and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth, a loving doe, a graceful deer, May her breasts satisfy you always, and may you ever be captivated by her love. So it's not advice just for young men. It's advice for those who have been around a bit. Um, are you going to take a trophy wife, trade her in for a new model? No, he says. You take delight in the wife of your youth. 
So this is wisdom for everyone. It may be given the character of my son, but we're told to think about it. And we're told that it's the wise, those who are already wise, who seek instruction and discipline. Follies, the foolish, and remember in the Old Testament when it talks about a fool, there's always a moral component to that. It doesn't just mean somebody who's not very intelligent. It means somebody who rejects the law and the way of God. Um, the foolish, we say, in the end is never going to learn anything. The wise, we are, if we start with the law of God, then we will be, in one sense, wise, but we will be always seeking further knowledge and instruction. And the other thing you might think, is this just an Old Testament book? Is it Old Testament stuff? Surely, surely it's all a bit basic, you know. Does it really have much to do with us in the Gospel Age? Is it just stuff that was all right in the late Bronze Age, but not much to do with even uh, a modern Roman uh, society, let alone a 21st century society? Is it just old-fashioned stuff? Well, let me suggest to you that it very much isn't, because um, the, the New Testament refers to Proverbs a surprising amount, and it often do it in an interesting way as well. And so what I'd like to do, actually, is um, say, get your flicking fingers ready. Um, I won't ask different people to read them out, because I, I want to um, uh, make comments as I go through. But you might find it helpful actually to look at some of these references, at least in Proverbs. Um, we don't have to look at the New Testament references as well, but um, we could do, but I think that would take too long. So flick through and we'll look at Proverbs, and I'll just remind you where these ideas come up in the New Testament. So I've, apart from the last one, which you'll see why I've left, left to the end when I get there, I've put these just in the order in which they occur in Proverbs. So turn first of all to Proverbs 3, verse 11. We read, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline and do not resent his rebuke because the Lord disciplines those he loves as a father, the son he delights in. Sounds familiar? It should do because it's quoted verbatim in Hebrews chapter 12, 5 to 11 when the uh, believers were going through some suffering and... Um, the writer to Hebrews advises them that this is the Lord's discipline and um, it's not a sign that the Lord has rejected them but rather that he's uh, disciplining the son whom he loves. Oh, um, Proverbs 3 verse 34 so same chapter now verse 34 um, where we read he mocks proud mockers but gives grace to the humble. That's quoted twice in the New Testament. It's quoted in James 4, verse 6, and it's quoted in 1 Peter 5, chapter, uh, chapter 5, verse 5. In fact, I think when, one Pe when Peter wrote his first letter, he must have had the scroll of Proverbs open on his desk because he quotes on it an awful lot. <laughs> uh, go on to... Chapter 10. Uh, 
chapter 10, verse 12. We read this. Hatred stirs up dissension, but love covers over all wrongs. So this is about the forgiving, healing power of love, isn't it? Love, hatred stirs up dissension, but love covers over all wrongs. It's quoted explicitly in 1 Peter 4.8. And um, new, other New Testament passages certainly seem to have this in mind. For instance, James 5.20, where James talks about love covering a multitude of sins. And of course, most famously perhaps of all, in 1 Corinthians 13, where the whole chapter is about the healing pattern binding together of the power of love. So that's certainly not an Old Testament idea. Proverbs 11, next chapter. If the righteous receive their due on earth, how much more the ungodly and the sinner? <coughs> 1 Peter again. In this time, case 1 Peter 4 verse 18, where interestingly he, he actually quotes the Septuagint version which um, talks about judgment receiving the, the righteous. Well, it talks about judgment starting with the righteous, with the house of God. So he brings out the idea that um, uh, even, it doesn't mean so much righteous receive their reward, but um, even the righteous receive judgment on earth for the things that they do wrong. And so the more, how much more the ungodly and the sinner. So uh, Peter gives it his own slant emphasizes that in 1 Peter 4.18 um, incidentally if you think that's a, a misunderstanding Dick Lucas in his comp Dick Lucas? No I don't mean Dick Lucas do I? Kidner, Derek Kidner that's right in his um, commentary discusses the meaning and he, I think he goes for the Septuagint version of it that it probably does mean something like that uh, Proverbs 13 verse 9 The light of the righteous shines brightly, but the lamp of the wicked is snuffed out. Well, I don't think this is directly quoted in the New Testament, but surely Jesus must have had it in mind when he said in uh, Matthew 14, 5, 14 to 16, where he said, you are the light of the world. The bright light of the righteous shines brightly. The uh, wisdom of God is shown through the people of God, the righteous people of God in the church. So, so it's not always quoted directly, but the ideas are often found there in the New Testament. Uh, move on to chapter 25. Verses 6 and 7. Do not exalt yourself in the king's presence and do not claim a place among great men. It is better for him to say to you, come up here, than for him to humi humiliate you before a nobleman. Sound awfully familiar again? Should do. Because 
in Luke chapter 14, Jesus expands this verse a bit. He says, When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honour, for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, Give this man your seat. Then, humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you're invited, take the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he will say to you, Friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honoured in the presence of all your fellow guests. So it's not a direct quote, but clearly Jesus' teaching there is directly based on that proverb. Or chapter 27. When we read verse 1, Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring forth. Now, there's all sorts of uh, ideas in the New Testament that pick that idea up. But um, let me, for instance, turn your attention to James chapter 4, verses 13 to 16, where James says, Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why do they not even know what will happen tomorrow? What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it's the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast and brag. All such boasting is evil. Clearly, James had that proverb in mind when he wrote his letter. This one's quite interesting as well. Proverbs 29, verse 3. Tell me about this cough. Proverbs 29, verse 3 says, A man who loves wisdom brings joy to his father, but a companion of prostitutes squanders his wealth. Well, surely this is the jumping off point for Jesus' parable of the prodigal son, the son who demands his share of the inheritance and goes away. But Jesus doesn't just look at it, leave it at that, of course. He brings with it the message of re- reconciliation. The point in Jesus' parable is that it doesn't get left like that. He does go off and be a companion of prostitutes and squander his wealth, but he finds that he can come back. But still, this is this—that's um, where it starts. That uh, man who doesn't bring joy to his father, but instead goes off and squanders his father's wealth. Now, back to 25. I've left this one to the end deliberately. Back to chapter 25. Now, what about um, doing good to your enemies, loving your enemies? Now, surely, that's a New Testament idea, isn't it? Isn't it? Isn't that where it comes from? Sure. I mean, the, the Old Testament's all about an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth and stuff like that. Doesn't that idea only occur in the New Testament? Uh, well, no. Um, it occurs in Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 25, verse 21. says this. If your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. If he's thirsty, give him water to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head and the Lord will reward you. So it comes from Proverbs. That's quoted, of course, by Paul 
in Romans 12, verse 20. And um, it's surely also the basis for Jesus' teaching again. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So the gospel is very much, I'm sorry, the Proverbs is very much a, a gospel book, a New Testament book. And when we find, when we look at um, wisdom and the adulteress next time, we'll find this is very much a, a gospel call, a call to turn to wisdom and away from the adulteress, away from sin. Proverbs are not prophecies. Um, they're not thus saith the Lord in the sense of um, you know, saying this is what's going to happen. This is what the Lord is doing. They tell us things that are, are generally true in this fallen world. Sometimes things perhaps that ought to be true. <laughs> um, that might be only fully true in the kingdom of God. So it's generally true that... Um, if you work hard, you, will, um, you should do well in your business and um, profit from the, the results of your labor. If you're a sluggard, if you're lazy, or if you try and um, gain by dishonest gain, then you're likely to come a cropper one way or another. But of course, that's only partly true in this world. We know there are lots of exceptions to those, both those rules. And indeed, Proverbs acknowledges that if we read it, we see that that's the case. But what it's really telling us is about how we ought to live. I mean, it's saying that the almost the point is that we should live diligently even if we don't become wealthy and prosperous. But, but because that is the way of life. And again, if we look at when we look at wisdom and the adulteress, we'll see that that's the choice that we're presented with, the choice between um, life and death so even if sometimes when we read the proverb and says well yeah but that doesn't always happen does it uh, well maybe not no but that's nevertheless the path of wisdom and perhaps another I've already mentioned that they're not neatly sectioned into topics the arrangement is quite random now why is this well they are the riddles of the wise we are supposed to think about them. Perhaps we're supposed to make our own connections. You see, if we just had this thing put laid out neatly and here's the section on business ethics, this is what you do, then perhaps we'd just sort of learn it parrot fashion, but we wouldn't um, make it our own, perhaps. We're supposed to think it through, perhaps if I dare say it. This is perhaps almost a, a Zen um, <laughs> approach to enlightenment. The idea is that you think over these things. You think what they really mean. No, you ask yourself, is this really true? Is this really how it works? What am I really supposed to learn for this? And you're supposed to make it your own. And we've seen the way that sometimes the New Testament writers simply quote the proverb exactly, but on many occasions they develop it or take a different slant on it or get, say, well, this is what the word is really saying and make it their own. And I would suggest to you that that's what we're supposed to do. So I'm going to put some connections together. 
over the coming weeks. But they are, in a sense, going to be my connections, not yours. Well, I hope they might be useful to you as well. But really, you should be making your own connections. You should be thinking about it. I would invite you to read as much of the book as you can. Certainly, if, um, say, two weeks before we're looking at Wisdom at the Adulteress, if you could read through the first nine chapters before then, it would be very useful, because obviously I won't have time to read them all. Um, if you could read through it and think about it, and that's what I'm aiming to help you to do over the next few weeks, help you to do and help me to do, um, that we can make, learn how to make our own connections from these and learn true wisdom. Because after all, wisdom is really about, um, as Paul takes in, in uh, Romans 12, isn't it? Having our minds transformed by the gospel, by the word of God, so that we actually know how to react in a particular situation. We don't uh, have to think it through at the time when the crunch comes. We know we're trained like a soldier is trained to react in the right way when a certain event happens because you don't have time to think it through then. So your mind is transformed by the word of God so, as we, so that you know how to react. And that's what wisdom perhaps is about. And So try and read through others more of it and make your own connections. And then finally, let's take the advice that comes at the end of the prologue. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. See, there are other sources of wisdom. As I said, the um, part of Proverbs is actually based on Egyptian wisdom. There are other books of wisdom. And you could go to the library and you could find any number of books of good advice and all sorts of things. Some of them are maybe worth reading. I think Phil quoted from, was it, Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus a few years ago. Maybe that's a book worth reading. Um, they are books of wisdom in a sense, but what do we find if we don't have a, a real foundation? And that's what Jesus says, isn't it? But build your house on my words. What happens is it unravels eventually. And don't we see that all around us now? Don't we see the great edifice of the enlightenment people uh, saying oh we can we can become wise by our own knowledge we can become wise and we can make ourselves more moral we just have to be rational and reasonable about it and we will progress and everything will get better and we'll become m much better moral people but what do we find we find that what we're really good at is killing each other the real benefit of technology is we can make better bombs and warplanes um, we find that ultimately it all unravels intellectually don't we so we, we, proclaim, we proclaim ourselves to be autonomous we say we're just the products of random chance and then what our thoughts are random chance aren't they um, we always come up against self-contradiction in the end I mean forgive me for a bit of philosophy um, when uh, Bertrand Russell tried to put, a, put philosophy on an empiricist base he, he, and philosophers of that time said we'll, we'll only accept as true the thing that we, things that we can test empirically which sounds fine until somebody pointed out that how do you test that that's called the verification principle. How do you test the verification principle? 
um, empirically. You can't. And of course, actually, we accept all sorts of things as true that we can't test empirically. In the end, it all unravels unless we uh, build our wisdom on the beginning of the Lord as the beginning, or what it really means is the foundation. It doesn't just mean we start with the Lord and then move on somewhere else. It means the whole edifice is built on the fear of the Lord, which, as Paul tells us at the beginning of 1 Corinthians, is in contrast to the wisdom of this world that tried to find God, but uh, more or less landed up saying either he doesn't exist or if he does, we can't get to him. But the wisdom that is based on the fear of the Lord is godly wisdom, wisdom that helps us to find God. So, over the coming weeks, I say we'll look, we've got five more weeks. Two weeks' time, we'll look at wisdom and the ad- adulteress. Then I'm going to look at um, three topics. I'm going to look at wisdom in the home, wisdom um, in business, wisdom in politics. And then we'll sum up at the end. That's We're going to finish off in March. Um, we will look at... Um, the wife of noble character and see what that final epilogue is all about so that's the plan so let's uh, cl- sing another psalm um, again uh, a psalm about wisdom this one